once you wrap that up and start turning your chairs back this direction. doing this morning? Okay. Um, when I was uh, while I was standing up here, one of the groups one of the groups asked me what I've dressed up as in the past and the first thing that came to mind when I was a junior high school teacher um, I was asked to chaperone a dance, and I wore this old man mask with long white hair. We still have part of the mask at home. It's all ripped up. I mean, it was 25 years ago. wore this old man mask with, uh, you know, wasn't scary, but long hair, and went down to like here, and I brought a cane with me. I didn't talk the entire night, and none of the students could guess who I was, but I would slap them with the cane. <laughs> it was just, it was, it was like a teacher's dream, right, John Kensick? Yes, okay, yeah. And then uh, finally, they keep asking me to talk, and I would just kind of grunt. Uh. Finally, one of them said, oh, I know who that is. That's Mr. Nussbaum. I said, how'd you know? He said, you never shave your neck. <laughs> so from then on out, I realized, oh, I should probably be shaving. That was before I was married. My wife would have told me that if I was married, but, but that was so fun then. I, so John, that's an idea if you ever chaperone a dance. Just don't talk and get a cattle prod or a cane, one of the two. And just, uh, that was fun. That was fun. So... Like I said, we still, have that, we still have the hair of that mask at home. And this part, it's all ripped up, but anyway. Um, let's pray, and then we'll uh, look into God's Word this morning. God, we, we believe in the Holy Spirit. And we say that not simply as an affirmation of truth. We say that as an affirmation of the reality in which we exist this very moment and very place and time. That we believe your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, is here in this room, moving among us, up and down the rows, sitting next to us, and as, you're, as, the word, as the Bible says, always talking and communicating to those of us who've opened up a home for him in our hearts, but also um, always wooing and chasing and pursuing those who aren't yet uh, his followers. So we pray that you would give every one of us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us and eyes to see what he's showing us. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. 25 years ago, 24 years ago, was my first, uh, first week of ministry in Bloomington. And I was working in another church in town, and I, my, my main job was working with college students. And in the very first week, I had what I would call one of the, kind of a wake-up call for me, but it was, a, it was, a, it was an interesting wake-up call. I had a guy named Tim had called me up, none of you know this person, it's 25 years ago, called me up and wanted to have lunch, and um, so we had lunch at Mother Bear's Pizza. I can even remember where we were sitting. And as we're talking, he's like, okay, here's the deal. He said, I've been in a gay lifestyle for the last five or six years. I think, I believe now Jesus, as a follower of Jesus, Jesus wants me to be celibate. And can you help me? This was the first real conversation I had with anybody who was gay in my whole life, as far as I knew it. And I remember in a fraction of a second thinking, wow, I'm not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> and, and, I, and we just had a really good conversation. At one point he said to me, I'm surprised. Go to the next slide. You don't seem shocked by this. And I said, and I remember having this feeling, I'm not shocked by your sexual brokenness because I've got a full picture of my own sexual brokenness. And sexual brokenness is sexual brokenness. So no, it, is it shocking? And no less shocking than my own sexual brokenness because I know what I am capable of and I know what I have done. And I know the strength of, that, of what brokenness can cause people to do. And I'm, I'm saying that opening up this idea that we've been doing a series now on uh, Jesus, the Bible, sex, and you. Okay, let me stop for a second. My wife told me to get a stool this week because I walk around too much. So I've got to be careful I'm not doing this all night. Woo! 
you know, anyway. So I'll try to sit still. I'm, I'm a hyperactive junior high kid at heart. Um, Jesus, the Bible, sex, and you. And this week is a week we're going to be talking about homosexuality. We've talked about that we're made in the image of God and, and other issues along the way. And actually this week and next week, and we'll, I'm going to use two, two different angles on talking about what the Bible says about homosexuality. Um, and let me say with this whole series, this is not about condemnation. This is not about pl- politics or how to win the culture war. And I've said that, but I'll just re- reemphasize that. Um, the church, we are not politicians, and we're not trying to win the culture war. We're trying to be the kind of people that Jesus has called us to be. And if we are, I believe we affect the culture. But it's not a war we're supposed to win. That's, that's God's job, not our job. And uh, so this is not a political statement. So, but this is about the mission of Jesus to set us all free. And, it, and here's some assumptions that, that we've made the last few weeks. Primary, big number one assumption is we trust Jesus and we trust the Bible. So when I say the, Jesus, the Bible, sex, and you, that order is very specific. We trust Jesus. We believe Jesus trusted the Bible. Old Testament, he talked about it authoritatively. New Testament, he, he said very clearly he believed the Holy Spirit would give his followers and remind them of all of his teachings. So their written recording of the rest of the New Testament um, I believe Jesus was saying implicitly, I trust what they're going to write down because I trust the Holy Spirit. So we believe Jesus trusted the Bible. So our whole understanding of human sexuality comes from uh, not, not Christian political culture, but from what the Bible says that Jesus believed. All right, And that's why I say Jesus, because a lot of times I think people try to talk about the Old Testament God and then New Testament Jesus as if Jesus had a different take on sexuality than God did when the Bible tells us that Jesus was the exact representation of the Father. He and the Father are one, so what God says, Jesus says. So other primary assumptions. Number one, sex is God's greatest idea. One of his greatest ideas, not his greatest idea. Um, Sometimes we may think it is, but it's one of God's greatest. It's his idea, and if it's his idea, he does have something to say about how we use something he's wired into us. Second second, uh, assumption is we all need sexual healing. All of us. There's not one of us here who is completely sanctified and whole in the depth of your being, including your sexuality. We all have sexual brokenness in our past, in our present, and in our future. And I'm not saying that like we're all losers. What I'm saying is we're all broken people who some are, are followers of Jesus and have healing taking place and have taken place, but we're all broken, even, even level playing field here. Number three assumption, Jesus is the most sexually fulfilled person ever. And you might say, and you might think, well, he never married that exactly and maybe uh, maybe it will change your perception of what it means to be sexually fulfilled because sexuality at its core is about our ability in deep ways to relate to god and to others but jesus was sexually fulfilled he was not repressed oppressed or bummed out about being single in that sense all right uh assumption number four god's design for your sexuality is that you be absolutely holy and wildly free and if i could put exclamation points around that, which I do in my notes. It, it, God's, God's first words about sexuality were a real big yes. Be fruitful and multiply. God, and you read the Song of Solomon, which is almost like a biblical sex kind of talk. It's, it's pretty big yes. It's a pretty erotic, big, powerful yes, 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 yes. We get hung up on all the no's, but the no's simply are the things to protect the big yes. All right? Now, um... I'll say this too. I know I'm talking to people who are, in this whole series, people that are married. Some are happily married. Some where sex is good. Some where sex is not so good. I'm talking to people who are single, who are engaged. Some who want to get married. Some who are lonely. Some are who are practicing, who are practicing sexual activity outside of the boundaries of how God designed it. And you're not married yet. I know there's people here that I'm not. I don't know names or people. I'm just. I know that's reality. I know there's people here that will that struggle or have or will struggle with pornography or unhealthy sexual fantasies. I know that there are people here who have been wounded by another in the area of sexuality. I know there are people here that really want to live by God's design. And there are people here who aren't quite sure if that's what you want to do, live by God's design. And with this topic at hand of homosexuality, let me say this too, and I'll say this really carefully because I want to make sure I understand this. 
And this goes true for heterosexual or homosexual attraction. Having strong sexual desires and attraction is not a sin. Right? So if you have or you know others who have a strong same-sex desire or attraction, that is not a sin. That does not make you a bad person. In the same way, if you have strong heterosexual desires or attraction, the desires or attraction is not the sin. The sin is when it turns into a lust or a practice. And I'm saying that because I'm guessing there are people here who have struggled with same-sex attraction, and I'll even say maybe unwanted same-sex attraction. I don't know anybody, even people I know that are gay that I've talked to, nobody grew up wanting to be gay. So if you have those same-sex attractions, and, they, and they're part of how you, it's, it, you wrestle with that, the attraction itself does not make you unworthy. It does not make you dirty. It does not make you flaw, flawly made any more than the rest of us are broken human beings. God made us in wholeness, but we're broken because of sin. But I want to be clear on that. Having strong sexual desires or attraction to the same sex is not a sin. Sexual lust or sexual practice is sin in terms of what the Bible says. Your sexuality may not be a choice you've made, but sexual activity is a choice you make or don't make. So I'm saying that because I want people to understand that if you have friends or you that one of these people in same-sex attraction, that is not, the attraction is not the sin at all. And, and more often than not, and some of you may have read a lot, but I've read a lot of literature, even psychological studies and stuff, uh, most people who are gay would say, I didn't choose this. So, and it may be an issue sometimes. I know one person in particular who would kind of shake his fist at God, like, why did you make me this way? And we'll talk more about that some next week, but I wanted to make that clear. So if that's a struggle, I don't want you to think um, this is going to be a condemnation kind of thing just for the fact that you struggle, all right? So let's go, let's go to the next slide here. Um, you've all seen the rainbow flag, uh, so I thought I'd do some research on it. Symbol of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender pride, and it's been used since the 1970s. Um, Rainbow flag, commonly called the gay pride flag, is a symbol of lesbian and gay bisexual pride social movement. The colors reflect diversity of the LGBT community. Flag is often used as a symbol of gay pride when it comes to gay rights marches. It originated in Northern California, but is used now worldwide. It was designed in San Francisco by artist Gilbert Baker, and the design has come to take different, many different shapes and color codes and things like that. However... I don't want to start with talking about gay pride. And there's a reason I don't want to talk about that. Because I'm going to go to the next slide. I want to talk about religious pride. Christian pride. That's the Christian flag, which is not in the Bible, of course, but you've seen it. Because, again, I want to make sure we're all on the same level playing field here. Because we can see the gay pride flag or talk about the gay pride movement, and for some times we have this contemptuous reaction kind of gag reflex like oh those people and it's what you know we talk about exodus we we want to live life without contempt doesn't mean we don't have discerning opinions we, we believe truth matters but the root of all sexual sin is pride and so first and foremost as we set the table for talking about the homosexual issue let's make sure we get a clear picture of the religious pride that we often can wave on our flags without even being aware of it. Because, see, the Bible says way more about heterosexual sin than homosexual sin. The Bible says way more about the sins of materialism, greed, and injustice to the poor. And the Bible says a bunch about pride. A bunch about pride. James chapter 4, verse 2, God opposes the proud, but he gives favor to the humble. If anything, in the, new t in, the, in the Bible, the thing that over and over that really got God wired up was the pride and arrogance of his own people. And I'll define pride and arrogance as thinking I can live life by my own terms and I will not listen to how God tells me to live my, live, live my life. And we all do that or have done that. 
Even one of the stories Jesus told was of the Pharisee in the temple. He was here, and over there was like this sinful tax collector, and they were like the scum of the earth, according to their religious culture at that time. And Jesus says, so this religious Pharisee is praying out loud, Oh, God, I thank you. I just thank you so much, God, that I'm not like one of them. Because I, I attend church every week, and I tithe, and I, go, I do all the religious things you ask me to do, so I'm so grateful I'm not like one of them. And Jesus tells that story, and he finishes the story, and we we'll go to the end of the story. But he tells that story to say how that behavior was incredibly offensive, and that's, he says it's the, it's the sinner who was closer to the kingdom of God than that person. So if you put the lens of looking for religious pride throughout the Bible, it is over and over and over and over. It's kind of like when you buy a car, then all of a sudden you see that car everywhere. So if you were to look in the Bible and just kind of look for themes of how God deals with pride, and if anything, God is really get, he really gets provoked by the sins of his people. He doesn't get provoked by the sins so much of those people, but it's his people, and the sin that provokes them most is their pride, thinking they can live life without, without living under the loving, careful kingship of God, who tells us no on things in our lives, and he does put boundaries around us. So I, I wanted to say that first because uh, sometimes the realization is even any of our sexual sins it's not so much the sex we need to repent of as much as the pride that drives it. Thinking, well, I, can, I know God says this, but I can do this. Surely he'll be okay with this. That's pride. Or, well, I, I, God will understand this if I do this. Or even in my marriage, if I'm kind of manipulative or forceful or kind of whiny with my wife, well, that's pride because I'm trying to get what I can't get if I just trust the way God designed things. One of my favorite talks from years ago, and it's, it was happened somewhere else, but a woman named Nancy Lee DeMoss talked about the proud hearts that we all have. And please hear me, I'm not, this is not a let's all squish ourselves down to the ground kind of thing. I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is, as human beings, we're all on an even level playing field before God. But she talks about, and, and, and she just reflects what the Bible says, that it seems like God categorizes people in two categories. Not gay and straight, but proud and broken. And proud people seem to wire God's anger up. Broken people make him really soft-hearted. And here's a few things she said. She says things like, proud people are self-righteous. They have a critical fault-finding spirit. They look at others' faults with a microscope but they're own with a telescope. They look down on others. Broken people, on the other hand, are compassionate. They can forgive much because they know how much they've been forgiven. They think the best of others. They esteem others better than themselves. Proud people have an independent, self-sufficient spirit. Broken people have a dependent spirit and recognize their need for others. Proud people need to prove that they are right. Broken people are willing to yield the right to be right. Proud people desire to be served. Broken people are motivated to serve others. Proud people have a desire for self-advancement. Broken people desire to promote others. Proud people have a drive to be recognized and appreciated. They are wounded when others are promoted and they are overlooked. Broken people have a sense of their own unworthiness. They are thrilled that God would use them at all in any ministry. They are eager for others to get the credit and they rejoice when others are lifted up. A few more. Proud people feel confident in how much they know. Broken people are humbled by how very much they have to learn. Proud people are quick to blame others. Broken people accept responsibility and can see where they were wrong. It goes on and on and on, but if, any of, if, if none of those yet have touched uh, you in terms of any I can be that way, I'll give you the rest of the list. You'll find yourself here somewhere. And again, I'm saying that because I believe the Bible's pretty clear about pride being an offensive sin to God, but I'm also saying because I believe pride is the root of all sexual sin. So if we can be honest and face and own the fact that's who we are apart from redemption in Christ, that will absolutely keep us from any kind of condescending, contemptuous hate toward people that are, uh, that are gay. 
So make sure you see that. Make sure you see that about yourself. Now, with that said, with that said, when homosexual activity is mentioned in the Bible, and I'm going to use four different passages of Scripture, when it's clearly mentioned in the Bible, the Bible clearly prohibits homosexual activity. So I, I'm, when I was doing all the things about pride and the things, I'm not trying to lessen the weight of sin. I think I want to make it all equally weighty. But with that said, the passages that talk about homosexuality all are very clear in their prohibition of sexual activity. So let's just let's look at all one of them. Uh, let's look at all. There's four of them we're going to look at today. All right. First one, Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus, the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus was the third book. Um, Levites, the Levites were the priests. So Leviticus is the directions given to those who were in charge of the, the priestly, the religious life of Israel. So the book of Leviticus then gives prescriptions for how to be holy. We talked about God's desire for his sexuality is to be wildly holy. So in Leviticus 18, and this is actually one among a whole list of sexual boundary issues that God is being clear about. Don't have sex with your neighbor's wife. Don't have sex with your uncle's wife. Don't have sex with your grandma. I mean, it's, it's very clear all of these prohibitions that would all fall into s sexual immorality. But this is just one of them, so it's not like God singles this out as the worst one, because sexual sin is all bad, all brokenness. He says, do not practice homosexuality. Having sex with another man is, as with a woman, it is a detestable sin. Now, let me also say, talk about that word detestable, because in the King James Version, the word is abomination. And you've, if you've been on campus, you've probably heard Brother Jed or the street preachers use that word. And they stretch it out, abomination, not abomination, so don't. I, when, I said, when I was reading that, I was like, that sounds pretty. Anyway. But an abomination, that's one of those words we don't use. It's a King James churchy religious word. But often people, and so really in other versions it would say it's, it is an abomination. And that, that's one of those words that sounds like really heavy and angry and abomination and what it simply means is but it's still heavy it's it's something that god that wants that incites god's anger and not god no god's not always angry all the time god is ultimately love but it's it's an abomination now let me say this though too because this is where we this often when christians talk about homosexual we leave this out the Bible also says pride is an abomination to God. Proverbs chapter 6 also adds these things as abominations to God. There are six things the Lord hates. No, seven things are an abomination to Him. Proud eyes, a lying tongue, hands that kill the innocent, a heart that plots evil, feet that race to do wrong, a false witness who pours out lies and a person who soars discord in a family. And we have all done those, some of those things. So my guess is in this last week, we've all probably done something that's been an abomination to God. Because none of us are living fully alive, fully free. None of us, if you're like me, I, you know, we're all pretty good at kind of shading the truth to make ourselves look better. You know, some of these things we tend to, well, I'm not a liar, I'm not this, I'm not that. But we all know we do things that violate others by our words and by our actions. And again, I'm saying that because the word abomination often gets tagged to this issue and this issue alone in the culture today. Homosexual sex, abomination. We all do things that are abominations to God. And again, I'm not trying to reduce the severity of homosexual sin. I'm trying to raise our awareness that we all do things that do deep violation to the character of God. So this is Leviticus 18, chapter 22. Go to the next one. Also in Leviticus, which is almost a repeat of the previous two chapter, uh, chapter before, but just said in a different way. If a man practices homosexuality, having sex with a man as with a woman, both men have committed a detestable act and must both be put to death. They are guilty of a capital offense. And I, 
I toyed with leaving that last phrase off there because it sounds so heavy. But again, that's not the ethic of the New Testament. We don't know. We don't, I'm not advocating people who sexually sin get put to death. Because there was a new covenant in the New Testament, and God rearranged things in a different way. Same character of God. But it's, there's other things that people were, I mean, you could be put to death. There was, you were put that, that a culture if you spoke rebelliously against your parents. So that's kind of like let him who is without sin cast the first stone. If you went through all the Old Testament provisions of what was worthy of death, I'm not sure any of us would have make it, made it through that tunnel. So again, but it's clear about homosexuality in this one. All right, Now let's go to the New Testament. And some might say, which is true, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, and he did not ever say anything about homosexuality. That doesn't mean that he would have discounted the Old Testament laws. You, uh, matter of fact, if Jesus did anything, he upheld the Old Testament sexual the laws, and he talked about the Old Testament laws of purity with great authority. So he would, uh, you cannot say, you might think that Jesus would support your understanding of homosexuality, but you can't support that by the Bible. You can recreate Jesus to fit that, but you can't support that Bible. Again, it's the whole objective of what we've done these last few weeks is you may think otherwise about sexual practices, but you cannot support the Bible or use Jesus as a basis for that, not the Jesus of the Bible. You can recreate a Jesus that might support your point of view, and you have a right to do that, but you can't do that by using the Bible as has been understood throughout generations and centuries all right so anyway so uh, go to the next one so now the new testament there's two passages romans one and uh romans was a letter that paul paul the apostle paul was a follower of jesus um jesus met him on a on a road that the spirit of jesus actually paul saw a vision of jesus and uh it's clear the understanding of the early church was that paul was speaking things that god was telling him so he's writing this letter to the church in rome and again, this is not, this part of Romans, he's not writing about homosexuality. He's not just saying, oh, I think I'll start with Romans 1, let's talk about homosexuality. What he's talking about is the arrogance of God's people and how arrogance even affects the rest of culture. But in the midst of that, he says, that is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. So God will abandon anyone who continues to put your straight arm into God and face and say, I'm not going to do it your way. I'm not going to do it your way. I'm not going to do it your way. If you do that enough, God will abandon you to the consequences of your own choices, whether it's gay sex, heterosex, heterosexual sex, lying, cheating, stealing, whatever. The Bible talks about that, that God will allow you to choose if you consistently resist what he's asking you to do. He will finally take his hands off and say, okay, Go your own way and see if that brings you the life you've always wanted. So, so God gives them over to their shameful desires. Even the woman, women turned against the natural way to have sex and installed it in sex with each other. And then the next one, this passage continues. Go to the next slide. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. The Bible doesn't tell us what the penalty they deserved is. Some people, I think, erroneously and just kind of guessing say, well, it must be AIDS, but that's, the Bible doesn't say that um, but because there's other things in heterosexual sin. The Bible talks about the penalties against our own body. I think it's more of a, a penalty against our own spirit and our soul and things like that. But it's, again, people often try to find political agendas in these passages. When Paul wrote this, he had no political agenda in mind. He had, what he had in mind was the purity and the absolute holiness and wildly free nature of God's people. All right, so that's in Romans. Next one, this is the last one we'll look at this morning. This is 1 Corinthians, so this is Paul again. And some of you again might say, well, Paul's not Jesus, but we, I could, I'm not going to do it now, but I could make, have a pretty good argument with you about that Jesus uh, had innate, gave innate authority to Paul. Um, Paul's not Jesus, but we do believe what the Bible, written in the Bible was something that the Holy Spirit led Paul to write. So Paul is writing a letter uh, to the church in Corinth, ancient Greek city of Corinth. This is his first letter, at least the first one we have record of. And again, this passage, if I give you the context of the passage, the context of the passage is Paul is challenging the Christians on their pride. 
Paul didn't write a sex letter. He's challenging them on their pride, and then he gives a few examples of some sexual sin gone bad. One of them particularly was the sexual sin of a guy who was living with his mother-in-law. He was sleeping with his mother-in-law. Totally heterosexual sin, but so the context was dealing with pride and thinking we can do things our way. Then he was talking about this guy who was living with his mother-in-law, and the church thought, I'll use this word, I'm not trying to be mocking, the church said, oh, we're being so tolerant. Look how tolerant we are, because we are tolerating this guy living with his mother-in-law and sleeping with her. And Paul's like, it's not tolerant, it's, it's shameful, it's evil. Because that's, that's creating, it's not the way God designed it. So in that context, Paul writes this, don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin, or worship idols, or commit adultery, or are male prostitutes, or practice homosexuality, or are thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards, or abusive, or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Now some people will say right away, well that means all those people are going to hell. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying they do not inherit the kingdom of God. They do not become the kind of people God has designed them to be. And heaven or hell in the future is God's business, not ours to try to decide that. But Paul is not damning everybody who wrestles with those things to hell. But there is a sense that if those things are continued without repentance, then that is evidence that the Spirit of God is not in that person. Those practices, not the, not the urges, not the temptation, but the practices. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful about this passage is Paul doesn't stop there. Go to the next slide, because this is the next passage. Some of you were once like that. So that means in the church in Corinth, you have ex-thieves, ex-abusers, ex-liars, ex-cheaters, ex-homosexuals, ex-adulterers. Some of you were like that, but you were cleansed, you were made whole, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, the hope of any sexual sin, pornography, fantasy, adultery, homosexual, heterosexual, is that transformation, change, is, is, is exactly the mission of Jesus. He came to set us free. Now, let me just say this, and I will talk, we'll hit more on this next week. Some of you might think, well, so are you saying if somebody's struggling with, homos with unwanted same-sex desires, if they become a Christian and get baptized, they'll get married like the next week to a woman and uh, they'll be totally heterosexual all over. That, that's what The transformation may not be in that way. And you might say, well, that's not fair. Why can't God just change that? Well, it might be the same way. It's like, why can't God change issues in your life or your health or in your body that you have may have prayed for God for years to change that. Um, I talked to somebody recently who has Parkinson's disease. And he said, I've prayed for years that God would change that and take that away from me. But for whatever reason, he says God didn't. Now, what I'm saying is that is, I've interacted with people who are gay, and I've talked to people who have interacted with them. God may never take away the unwanted same-sex desires. And there against you might say and i would definitely say well god why wouldn't you why wouldn't you same way god may not take away that issue in your body that you wish was different that issue in your health that was which was different and i'm sure many people have prayed for many things and i'm not i'm not equating homosexual desire with cancer i'm not saying that what i'm equating with is they are unwanted things in our lives and in our bodies and we can ask God to change them, and we should ask God to change them. But then the Spirit of God always says, and the response is from Scripture, but my grace is always sufficient for you, and my power will be made perfect in weakness. So if somebody who is, has same-sex attraction, unwanted same-sex attraction, they become a Christian, does the Bible promise that two years later they'll be happily married in a heterosexual relationship with 2.5 kids and a red pickup truck? No, the Bible doesn't promise that. The God, what the Bible promises is the presence of the Spirit of Jesus to walk with that person in as a wildly, holy, absolutely free kind of person. And it's, it's probably similar to the struggle that people that 
desperately want to be married but find themselves not married and maybe living a life lifelong of singleness, you betcha those people have prayed for God to bring a partner. Of course they do. But if God doesn't bring a partner, God brings power and presence and peace and allows them to be fully alive and free. Not incomplete, but he may not change their reality. And then you might say, well, why does God create people that have same-sex attraction? We live in a broken world. I mean, all of us have different broken issues fleshing out in our lives. Um, People have tendencies to all kinds of sinful issues, alcoholism, things like that. And again, I'm not equating alcoholism with, I'm, not, I'm just saying there's issues we all could say. There's predispositions we're born with because we live in a broken world. And God doesn't change those overnight. He can. He has the power to. But what he does change is how our hearts respond to him and gives us a deeper sense of trust that we can continue to be alive, awake, and free even as we deal with this issue we, that, that is a struggle, is a battle for us, but in doing so, we become the kind of people God wants us to be. So I, there may be issues, some of you might right now, but be thinking of your own life, where you might think, and, I, and I'll share this in a couple weeks about my own story, the whole you were once like that. I was once addicted to pornography. I'm not anymore. And I think that was the spirit of God changing me. Now, I'm not... But that doesn't mean all struggles go away. It doesn't mean I don't struggle anymore. It doesn't mean I can walk by, you know, I can click onto a website that all of a sudden shows the Colts cheerleaders. It doesn't mean that doesn't become a challenge I've got to click away from. It doesn't mean that's gone away. It means I now have, as you can have, as we all can have, the power and the ability by the Spirit of Jesus to not do the things that the flesh is crying for you to do. And we can be changed. So, uh, I'll talk more, we'll talk more about some of these things next week, but the, the main thing I want to make sure we all understand is we're all sexually broken, but there's hope for every single one of us. And for those of you who have friends that are gay, family members that are gay, um, you know more about the compassion that's required than I know, because you have to live it out, and you know more what it means to live in love without contempt. And it, but it's possible because that's the kind of people God wants us to be. And I think if we were those, if, if, if the rap on the church in America was not that we're so against these things, but if the rap on the church was they're very kind, they're generous, they're very welcoming, but being welcoming doesn't mean we have to be affirming of everybody's issues. If that was the, if people thought that's, and what people often will say is that's the church, that's where the church ought to be. So we don't promote what we're against, although we understand there's truth. But in the end, the bottom line is that the cross of Jesus promises transformation of our hearts so we can trust and pride becomes no longer our biggest struggle in life. And we begin to trust that God, we understand how God wants us to live and we trust his power with us. So let me pray. God, to whatever degree I've uh, said or implied anything that is uh, not a reflection of truth, not a reflection of your character, not a reflection of your love and your holiness, to whatever degree I've said anything that even goes that direction, I pray that you would uh, w- wipe that from all of our memories. Um, because in the end, God, I, we, wanted, we only want to live and proclaim and to understand your heart on these issues not the republican heart or the democratic heart or the liberal or conservative or the progressives heart we want to understand the heart of god on this issue and we want to be that to the world around us and we ask this all in the name of jesus amen hey we uh finish every sunday with communion and there's no other better way to say it this week. We, we do this because we believe this is the essence of Christianity. Christianity is not a political philosophy. It's not a worldview. It's not a way to live life. Christianity is a supernatural religion that's about the man Jesus sent from God who was God, who came to give his life for us, and he was resurrected so we can have a new life inside of us and be the kind of people that God made us to be. So the night before the night he was betrayed, he 
they were taking this Passover meal, and Jesus was giving new meaning to this sense of freedom and release. He says, this is my body, and this is my blood. This is given for you. When you eat this and when you drink this, you remember me. You remember everything I've promised you. You remember what I've done for you, and you remember that freedom from sin is now possible. Absolute freedom from sin is now possible. So when you take the bread, and here's how we do it at Exodus. We'll sing a few more songs, and then there'll be people in the main aisles here, and they'll offer you some bread, and just tear off a piece of how we do it here. And then offer you the cup, you just dip it in. And no, it's not a magic pill, but it is a symbol, symbolic, mystical action you're doing because you're saying, I want more of the resurrected Jesus inside of me. I want more of his spirit inside of me. And, you, and if you have more of something in you, that means something that's in there has to be pushed out, which is usually the things of our own flesh and our own pride. So every time you take this cup and eat this bread, Jesus said, we proclaim his death. By proclaiming his death, we're proclaiming death to things inside of us that are getting in the way of us being fully alive. So uh, let's pray, and then we'll take, mostly, here's how we do you, we, dis, we don't dismiss, dismiss by rows. You just come and take when, whenever you want to. And I do tell this to people, if you're giving God a straight arm in a, in a known area of your life, it's best for you not to take for your own benefit. And um, we don't see you as up or down. We don't try to check on that, but that's going to be between you and God for your own well-being. So let's pray, and then we'll sing. Jesus, uh, you came to redeem all of our sins. Pride, deceit, envy, unforgiveness, heterosexual sin, and homosexual sin. You came to redeem it all. You came to wipe it away. You came to forgive those sins and then give us new life. Here and now, new life, new power. So Jesus, we're grateful that you, on our behalf, were obedient to the Father in your death and your resurrection. And we are people who would say we absolutely know we need the power that you promised, supernatural power inside of us. We need that because we know that's the only pathway to be the kind of fully alive, awake, and free, patient, kind, generous, holy, wildly holy kind of people that we want to be. So we're grateful, and we uh, take this as an act of gratitude and an act of submission to you, uh, King Jesus. And we ask this all in your name. Amen.
God, we thank you for the promise that, uh, that you are for the weak, you are for the weary, you are for the broken. And uh, that's us. But you're also, your promise also is that you will give us strength. And that the, your joy, the joy of the Lord, is our strength. So in this area of, in all the areas of our lives where we trying to figure out what it really means to follow you, would we always at the baseline know that you are for us and not against us. And now uh, may God bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. Uh, may he lift up his countenance to you. And may God give every single girl, boy, and woman, and man in this building, may you give us all peace, God. And may we have the peace that comes only from the Spirit of Jesus. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, thanks for coming. Help us out. We stack up chairs back under the flag if you're able. In other words, in other words have a great week. <laughs>